Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. AssetMap is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Are you looking for the next big thing in advisor technology? AssetMap is used by thousands of financial advisors to help create more meaningful conversations with clients. See for yourself how AssetMap is leading the next phase of financial advice delivery. Learn more at asset-map.com forward slash Louis for special listeners discount. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. I'm so excited to have Megan McCoy in the studio with me. Megan is a board member of the Financial Therapists Association, a faculty member of Kansas State, a fellow nerd, and we discussed all the financial planning books that we are yet to read before this session. And I think it's going to have a, be a lovely conversation just to talk about all these, these softer side of financial planning. Megan? So nice to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat. I mentioned just before the session started that often our work can feel like a therapeutic session as opposed to a financial planning session. And I know you have a passion for therapy and starting out in that industry. How come these worlds all of a sudden feel like they collided and this hasn't happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Yeah, You know, what's fascinating is I think it happened once before, and that was during the Great Recession. That's when the first founders of financial therapy came together and said, you know, all my financial planning clients are talking about their emotions and their stress and their anxiety. And all of us therapists were like, all my clients are talking about money. Let's let's collaborate. And, And that was the birth of financial therapy during that high stress time. And then if you think about the tumultuous last couple of years that the world has seen with so many worldwide events from from COVID to Russian invasions to stock market fluctuations, like there's just been so much unknown, so much ambiguity. And I think it was the perfect breeding ground for financial therapy to get a renewed focus. You know, we put another spin on it too. I think COVID had this, uh, this uh, vulnerability over all social media where people were like, mental health is important. Our well-being is important. And it almost like that taboo kind of went down a little bit, which I also think facilitated this new rise of financial therapy conversations. So is it that that door is now unlocked and it's it's acceptable to talk about how you feel about this? I hope so. I hope so. It's funny because 
every time I meet someone who just learns about financial therapy, they always say something along the lines of like, I didn't know this existed, but I'm so thankful I discovered it. Like, I didn't know that other people thought the same way as I did. It's almost like we find our people that recognize that you can't talk about money unless you're you're touching on these underlying dreams and hopes and and future aspirations. It's, it's too linked with our our psyche to just talk about money as like an Excel sheet. I've heard that quite a few times of financial planners that said, oh, I really want to talk about the psychology side and my clients want to talk about it, but I don't necessarily have the skills. I don't have the training. And I know this might be a little bit tricky speaking to a South African audience, but where should people start like start building these skills? Like, what do you think is a good solid foundation? Yes. Like I am such a massive fan of Brad Klontz and Rick Kaler. I think if you're going to start anywhere, starting with facilitating financial health and, uh, and money mammoth, then those books are such a good entryway. The Financial Therapy Association, unfortunately, is just U.S. bound right now in terms of their certification, but they do have a monthly webinar that anybody can jump on or even watch a recording if the time doesn't work. Um, it's at 12 p.m. on Friday Central Standard Time. <laughs> I'm not sure how that translates, um, but it can be recorded. That's great ways to get little touches of it. Um, and also, my Kansas State program is an online program. So if anybody wants to take some continuing educa education courses, I promise I try to make class fun and interesting to give you that little foray into this world. And so you mentioned that, you know, it, it is open globally for someone to take this Kansas State program. How much of it is U.S. centric and how much of it's kind of applicable to global audiences? Yeah. So it's four classes. The first one is intro to financial therapy, and this is counseling-like skills. What are your communication skills? What are your listening skills? Also, how do you navigate resistance when your clients are saying they want to change, but they can't actually make that change? And so I think that is so universal <laughs> for all of us who work with any kind of profession where you need change happening. Um, our next one is money and relationships, which is going to go into how did your family talk about money? How did you guys navigate it? And of course, what's interesting is that there's always going to be cultural differences that we should be aware of and appreciate, but that actually it's, it's the beauty of families that even two families in the U.S. may be as diverse as a family in South Africa and as a family in the U.S. So I think those are very translatable. The next one is research in financial therapy, where we teach planners how to read academic literature and not get bored out of their mind. How do we how do we focus in on what's important and what can we ignore? Um, that one tends to be a little U.S. focused, but it shouldn't be. It could be research from all over the world. And then our final class is behavioral finance, which is all these uh, unset assumptions and shortcuts our brain takes to figure out money that sometimes works out for us and sometimes truly backfires. So they, I think they are pretty universal. Our larger master's program, which is an amazing program, is going to be much more U.S. bound and they'll talk about U.S. taxes, but the actual financial therapy courses, I think, are universal. Can we break down some of these a little bit? You know, I think specifically yeah. the clients resisting. I had a conversation mm. this morning with someone that committed to retiring at the at the beginning of next year. And through our conversation, she decided, oh no, I just need to work another nine months because I want to buy this new car. And it feels mm -hmm. like there's so many clients that they set themselves up for a really great, be it retirement or spending time with their family. And then they kind of put a block up and they say, oh, I, I'm, I can't yet get that. Where would you start in that type of conversation to start 
kind of unpacking yeah. what's behind that. Oh, I love thinking about retirement. And you know what's wild is that human longevity has increased dramatically over the last century. But what's more than that is that our health, our health age has dramatically improved. Someone at 60 and 70 today looks dramatically different than someone who's 60 or 70, 20 years ago even. And so I think retirement has been stuck in this old view when we had pensions, when we were going to pass away, when we were sick and weak. And now we have this vitality that makes retirement have to be transformed. And so there's there's a great... uh, thing on TED Talk I heard one time that in Japan, I think it was, retirement translates roughly to the reason I wake up in the morning. Our word for retirement, the English word, means to end, to to stop, to slow down. I'd much rather dream about the reason I wake up in the morning than the ending of something. And so I think retirement conversations should look like what Mitch Anthony describes. He says, open up that agenda and fill in what's your beautiful day. What's your wonderful retirement week going to look like? What are you going to fill it with? Where is it going to give you meaning and purpose? And then, and then it'll naturally become, I can't wait to retire until instead of, oh, I have to retire, you know? So that concept <laughs> of retiring towards something as opposed to retiring from now moving yeah. towards, it's like something pulling us a little bit. But how do you bring those conversations back to that? So now you mm. maybe do this session with a client a couple of months ago. In the moment, they throw a curveball and they're like, all of a sudden, it's completely forgotten. Like, how do you tie that back naturally in your conversations? Mm. So I love, there's this um, intervention in the therapy world called the miracle question. Have you ever heard this one before? It's kind of cool. Oh, okay. On your <laughs> webinar. <laughs> That's the only place. I love the miracle question. It's this idea that you actually tell the client this verbatim. You say, like, this is super corny. So you just have to bear with me because I promise it's helpful. And you say, I want you to wake up and don't tell me what the miracle is. Tell me that you woke up and you have all these realizations a miracle happened. What about your life is different? What about your day is different? Who are you with? What are you doing? What are you spending your time enjoying? Tell me about those little clues that let you know a miracle happened. And that kind of naturally will translate so well into retirement where they can say, these these are the little things that are different. I'm making this beautiful lunch. I'm making time for my granddaughter. I'm spending time lunching with my friends. Like those different things kind of help them visualize what's missing and what can be possible in their lives. I think also, you know, it's so human nature to always want to create change by thinking about logic, right? We're always like, here's the facts, why you have enough money for retirement. But people don't listen to logic. If we did, we would all work out four times a week. We'd all sleep eight hours. We would all eat our vegetables. Instead, we are motivated by emotions. We're motivated by our social persuasion, what other people around us are telling us. We're we're motivated by uh, these these feelings rather than logic. And so I think when um, we get stuck with clients, we need to slow down and and tap into the emotions rather than logic. I love that because we always hear don't make emotional decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that even possible? Can you make a decision without any emotion? (laughs) Maybe not. I don't think it's ever not clouded a little bit by it. There's some tricks, I think, if you write things down, you tend to get this one degree separation from your emotions. You're able to look at things like 
farther away from you. You use a different part of your brain when you're writing than you do when you're talking or, or thinking. And so I think that maybe gets a little closer if you did like pros and cons list. Uh, but I think always emotions is kind of underlying it. Because making a lot of these resistance things seem like a good idea in the moment. Oh, I just need to work a little bit longer. I need to save a little bit more. It almost seems like it's all things that are quite positive from a financial planning perspective, right? Things that we try and ingrain in our clients through their lifetime of accumulating assets. But yet when it gets to this big shift and this next phase, it's almost completely turned around. Right, right. That's why, you know, we, I think for when we made the switch from pensions to defined contributions, there was a lot of media around, we're not going to have enough money, like the Americans, are, especially in America, but the world is in a retirement crisis. And so I think there was this like, mental shift that happened that made people more frugal, more scared to spend their money. And we know because of mental accounting, people spend their retirement money different than they spend their paycheck. Like it feels almost like guiltier to, to spend that withdrawal, which you should mentally see as a paycheck, but it's, it's different somehow. And so I think recognizing that some of our clients who are financially stable may need some help making that shift to saying you're safe, you have a plan in place, this is what you're allowed to spend, especially with the noise around us regarding all the uncertainties around the markets. I think it's important conversations to have. And recognizing that potentially fear or anxiety might be underlying that. Is that just kind of peeling the a, the layers of the onion away? Saying, okay, what's yeah. behind this? What's behind this? What's behind it? Yeah. I always like this idea of always imagining every behavior someone's doing serves a purpose. So when you're looking at your client and you're like, that is a dumb behavior. Like that doesn't make any sense. You have to shift and say, I don't understand what this behavior is protecting or doing or helping my clients. You know, like uh, a good example is I talk a lot about uh, supporting adult children and navigating like, when am I supporting my adult child to help them? And when am I just kind of enabling them? And so when you have a client who's spending so much money on their adult child, you might just be like, oh, that's so dumb. But then if you look under that, like the layer you described, say, what purpose does this serve? Does this keep their child close to them? Does this make them feel less bad about something that happened 10 years ago to their kid? Does this make them feel like they're still serving a caretaking role that they've missed? And once you can get to that, then you can kind of fix the problem, which is not the giving the child the money, but whatever purpose it's serving. That reminds me of a part that Rick Kayla says in every podcast. You know, once you unpack the emotions behind the decision, every seemingly illogical decision makes complete sense and it becomes... <laughs> logical and it's like okay well now i understand why you've made yeah. this i picked up a book over the weekend it's the financial psychology by dr alex Malcumium, and in the forward i spotted your your name saying oh i just wanted to say thank you to megan for for allowing you to build this um build this book and put it out in the world and it's so wonderful because it starts talking through all these uniquely american problems that people go through and i looked at him like hey we're going through this as well, right? It's very similar. It's the same anxieties. And in about the middle of the book, he talks about naming the emotions behind your money. Can you talk a little bit about what are the practical things we could do to help our clients kind of put a label on the emotions? Because usually, yeah. you know, once you become comfortable with like, oh, there is an emotion, figuring out really what that is can be quite tricky. Yeah, there's a couple of great exercises that I love 
Um, one of them is called the money egg that Rick Kaler really kind of designed, um, where you draw out all your early money memories and kind of describe how they shaped you. You can probably use your internet search engine to find great examples of that online. There's another thing called a money genogram that was from the mental health world, but it has been used by a lot of estate planning specialized people who kind of look at where do these family stories come from. And if anybody's interested, I could send you the link, but there's an article by Mumford and Weeks as the authors, and they have these beautiful questions about what did you love about how your parents handled money? What did you wish they did do differently? What did you observe growing up? Those, what we call financial socialization that we received as a kid, shape our money beliefs. And because money is so taboo to talk about, we don't have an opportunity to share with others these unsaid partial truths that are part of our reality. And there's also great inventories that you can give to your clients. My favorite is um, Brad Klontz's money script inventory. Um, there's a, a large, um, amazing uh, organization called T Data Points that actually has that online that, that planners can send their clients. It, but it gets to the money beliefs that they have that they might not even realize they have or are holding. So hopefully that was a lot of stuff. <laughs> it is. But as you were talking and mentioning children, I re recall you saying that your kids are kind of growing up now. But I'm curious, what are the things that you consciously did with your children around money when they were small that other yeah. parents might miss without this training? Uh, you know, we have some fun books like The Four Money Bears by Matt Gardner. It's great. I love that book. Um, Jamie Bossy has one. It's called Milton the Money Dog that I love. So we have these fun books that we read about money. We also do um, a small allowance. It's $2 a week based on chores. But what's cool is that we do interest every week with our daughter. So we get a practice multiplication. We practice discussing, like, if you leave your money in the bank, you're making money. If you take it out, you won't have as much money getting multiplied. We also, something very important to us is charitable giving and teaching our kids to be grateful for what they do have and recognizing we should help the world be a better place. So if they take money out to give to a charity, we match it. And we have a lot of discussions about, oh, this is exciting. Look how much you're going to give to the charity of your choice. So those little things are a fun way to be able to get numeracy school skills, be able to talk about money and, and needs and wants and gratefulness. So that helps. Now, I do want to be very clear that I still get very uncomfortable at times talking about money. One day, my daughter asked me how much money we had in our bank account. And like all this stuff came up for me. Like, why do you want to know that? That's not your money, blah, blah, blah. But I had to like do all this deep breathing and be like, you know, that number doesn't matter as much because we have accounts that we're saving for your college. We have accounts in case something goes wrong that we can protect our family in emergencies. And it gave a good conversation about how these multiple accounts work in synergy rather than some number that wouldn't make sense to a five-year-old. <laughs> I'd love to hear what her response was once she heard the number. Well, that's like, the funniest thing. Was there relief or was there... <laughs> By the time the conversation went on, she didn't, she got bored. <laughs> so I don't know if I ever actually made it to the number. And that's the funny thing about financial socialization is that we put all this emphasis as parents to say the right thing. They're only listened to 
bits and pieces at a time. It is the cumulative experience of like, is money something that causes stress or anxiety? Or is it something we can talk about openly and have conversations about? That is what is going to shape your children long-term, that peace and okayness. I think the long-term is what's good. That's so valuable to hear. Because someone having a, a little child, like they, there's pressure around getting every interaction right. But mm-hmm. it sounds like it's more like this cumulative knowledge that, you know, you're passing on to them through your yeah. interactions makes and a difference. Them, yeah. And teaching them that you're a person who wants to talk to them about it, that you're there for them whenever they have questions down the road. I think that's just cool. I'm very excited to have Matt Gardner on. That's the author of The Four Bunny Bears. And it it actually, it's once I heard the kind of structure around, there's only four ways that you can use money and it's spending, giving, investing and saving. And it's like, oh, wow, actually that does make sense. And I'm using that with myself and with clients. And there's an element of simplifying things so that people don't feel alienated. Yes. Yes. Like Carl Richards, the napkin. I don't know if you guys ever seen the napkin guy. He like draws all these very simplistic drawings to explain more complicated experiences. His, his strategy works so well. Like I think the research around physiological arousal, and there's some great ones by John Grable and Derek Lawson and Sonia Luter that show that when we are physiologically aroused, meaning we're stressed or we're anxious or we're worried, then we don't think as clearly. We're not able to process information. We did a study recently with all the Financial Planning Association in the U.S.'s clients, and we had about 300, 400 clients. All of them recorded high financial anxiety. These are the people who have more money than the rest of the general pop because we know that despite efforts to make it more inclusive, financial planning does tend to be higher wealth individuals. They also have someone who's taking care of them. They're doing all the right things and their financial anxiety is high. That means everybody's is high, right? And so when you're talking to your clients, that simplicity, that breaking things down, that helping them recognize that money is just a facet of spending a little bit less than you make, that really gives them the ability to listen while they're physiologically aroused. I really wonder if the rest of the population's money stress would necessarily be higher. You know, in Mm. our interaction, so in South Africa, there's a very big gap between the people that have and the people that don't have. And we often see the people that don't have is a lot more content. They tend to live happier lives. They're actually so grateful for what they have. So I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. You know, there's a great article that's called Money Doesn't Make Us Happy, But It Buys Us the Opportunity for Happiness. And it goes into all this great research. And one of the studies they kind of hint at is there's some studies that show thinking about money too much tends to make us more focused on ourselves than others. And this is funny because we talk about money too much, but hopefully we do the second thing, the anecdote, the same researcher who really led the charge in saying, you know, maybe people who are thinking about money too much are too self-focused. What they did afterwards was show a quick clip of some family in need, some family who had a little bit less, some family that needed help. And immediately those people switched their gears from looking so internally focused, being a little egocentric to saying how grateful they have for what they have, how they want to make the world better for that family, how they want to help. And so I think if we can take the takeaway from that research line is that, again, facilitating our clients to have charitable conversations, that thinking about how can we link their, what they have to safety 
and making the world a better place, I think that can really help decrease anxiety too. Thank you. That's so helpful and practical that we can actually take away. I know as part of your work, you do quite a bit of research. What are you most passionate about at the moment? Oh, so I'm about to do a study this fall that I'm really excited about on financial infidelity. So financial infidelity is at the at the plainest speak is just lying by omission or lying overtly about something regarding your money. And what's amazing about it is that stats all over the place, right? If you ask somebody, have you ever committed financial infidelity? The rates are like 15 to 20%. But then if you say things like, have you ever rounded down how much you spent? Have you, have you ever not shared that you bought something new? Have you ever not admitted that you bought something? All of a sudden, this, the, the, the numbers go way, way, way up, right? And I don't think that means you're bad if you've done that, because I think some stats have shown Have you ever told a white lie, essentially? Yeah, right. Right. No. <laughs> it does not make you bad, but it's a sign of something, right? It's a sign that you can't be assertive with your partner or that you don't have the conflict resolution skills or you have some shame about what you're buying. Or So I think financial infidelity is this like portal into strengthening a relationship to improving what can be better in all kinds of facets of the relationship. So I want to do a big study on that in the fall and that's what I'm hoping it'll work out. <laughs> and so what are you expecting to to learn from this or to gather from this? Yeah, what I really want to know is the reasons for the financial infidelity. So I'm going to dive into the types of financial infidelity, which um, there's a great um, team of researchers, Michelle Jean-Froh, who has a nice list already, but I just kind of want to expand on that one a little bit. Um, and then I want to understand the why uh, and what maybe they wish they had done instead you know, or what would keep them from doing it again in the future. I think that's where I want to get into. We found that sometimes it's it's helpful just having a word for this, right? Like yeah. financial infidelity and saying, oh, actually, yes, that is what's happening here. I've spent yeah. a bit of time training around financial abuse. And a lot of our clients never realized that they were victims of financial abuse. They just thought, oh, my ex-husband was a little bit manipulative. But actually, right. there's kind of there's a trauma that comes with that and there's an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I had such a similar experience this year where I was teaching a course on financial abuse in one of my lectures and someone disclosed that they realized through the course of the lecture that they had experienced something similar. And so I think you're right, like naming it and making it more clear is so essential. I mean, so many cases of financial abuse like you're describing can just be slightly controlling, slightly manipulative, but that still has negative impact on your emotional well-being and your relational health. Another thing to think about is that in the more extremes, financial abuse is the is a gateway for many um, domestic offenders. Like that is a way to control your partner, take their ability to leave, take their ability to escape away. And so 99% of domestic violence cases have a financial abuse component to it. It is often the first part of the abuse cycle before it gets bigger and larger and physical. What would you say if someone suspects that they might be suffering from financial abuse or have someone that's close to them that's suffering from this? What's the first step? Oh, yes. I mean, I would love to get everybody in the therapy office. I think therapy was always seen as something that is for people who are broken in the past. And now we know therapy can just make our lives richer, can make our lives better, that it is striving for what we call positive psychology that is strengthening what you are rather than saying we're going to fix anything because you are already good. So that would be my dream. But my 
I guess the smaller step that one can take is getting financially literate, you know, simple things like checking your credit score, knowing your logins to bank accounts, like those smaller steps of financial autonomy can really be a protective factor. I'm smiling because it, it's almost like we take these things for granted. Oh, someone should be able to do that. Yet, if you don't know how to do it, it can seem like this mountain oh, ahead of you. Yes. Yes. And so I was the most financially illiterate person growing up. I did not like money. I wanted to be a therapist since I was like a little tiny kid. So like there was no, I don't know, in my mind, I had to save the world. And if I save the world, then money shouldn't matter. And I don't know where I got them from because that's not true at all. (laughs) But so I was so financially illiterate. And I remember being like 25 and having a tremendous amount of student loans, but not knowing how to pay them. I didn't know where my accounts were, what the password was, where they were located. And I had a lot of student loans. Like, it's pretty wild. And if someone asked me to just provide them their, my student loan account, the physiological arousal, the stress, the anxiety, the freaking out I would have experienced would have been overwhelming. And when I was in my grad program, I was lucky enough to work side by side with amazing financial planners. So I traditionally trained as a therapist would sit along a planner and have these meetings. And there were so many times that my only contribution to these sessions was slowing things down and saying, let me walk you through how you can find your tax, the information. Let me walk you through how to find that login. You know, that little contribution was enough to let the financial planner help all these different things. But I was there to scaffold, to make them aware where the limitations of their clients may be. And I think financial planners recognizing that not everyone is financially literate, not everybody's comfortable talking about money, it's really, really essential. That's such a beautiful term that you used there. I was the scaffold to like, yeah. allow everything else to sit upon. And it feels like the, the human side of financial planning, and by that I include therapy, I can, I can include the transitionist work, the coaching work. It feels like that's now becoming the new scaffold of financial planning. Yes. In the U.S., they codified it. The CFP board recently added client psychology to our education, to our exam requirements. We just released a book um, that um, I hope is well received, actually getting to the skills of like, how can we get these financial planners who didn't get a chance to have courses like Love and Money to understand that their couples may be coming with different views on money, that their couples might not both be literate about money, that one partner may need more support, especially means that one partner who usually needs more support is the one who's withdrawn and quiet and resistant. And that's the one we should be talking to more. (laughs) It's kind of counterintuitive. I can't remember who it said, but someone had this rule of thumb that you should always ask the non-dominant spouse or the non-dominant partner the question first, because the other one tends to override. And that's, that's been so helpful for me in conversations when I want to try and steer it and like, okay, well, we have to ask this party for the the information first. And going back to like our earlier conversation about resistance was fascinating with um, coaching financial planners is that oftentimes when we have a resistant client, we tend to go with this like negative view, like what if something happened to your partner, blah, blah, blah. That's just going to cause their resistance to go up because now you're introducing more fear and anxiety. So I like to switch that and say, if you were able to be more of a partner around these finances, you would take some of the stress from your partner. You would be fighting for the goals you want. You would be making decisions that line up with your dreams and desires and kind of move away from the fear base, trying to motivate them to be involved to like a a dream-based reason to be involved. 
So in South Africa, our financial planning profession and industry is very much revolved around insurance. And it feels like the insurance and even some of it, the investment space is driven by fear. It's like, if you don't invest in this, inflation is going to erode your money or your spouse is not going to have enough money. Where do you find that balance between marketing fear and actually marketing positive outcomes? Does fear still sell better? Uh, you know, there's probably some kind of combination. I hope he is continuing, but one of my amazing doctoral students, Romel Strong, was doing a study actually pretty much closely aligned to what we're talking about. His was about trust, but he was using three different stories to kind of sell the idea of having a trust in place. One was um, a negative, like this is what's going to happen if you die and you don't have a trust in place. One was just logic. Here's the benefits to having a trust. And one was, here's all the beauty. This is your family will be so much safer and better and blah, blah, blah. And all this positive stuff as a third one. And he's going to show those two participants and see which one is the most powerful indicator of change. I think that there's probably some kind of combination that you need to get to. But I think we as humans, and I'm talking as a planners now, we tend to not be very good at switching tools in our toolbox, right? Like we have this hammer and we just use that same hammer no matter what, right? Instead of trying to figure out what's a different strategy. That strategy didn't work. Let me try it differently. Instead, if we use the fear-based approach, instead of switching to a different type of approach, we just make it more and more scary instead of switching your tool in total. (laughs) (laughs) I want to segue a little bit into that third section you spoke about, the kind of the the heuristics, the mental shortcuts. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like, tell me, like, how is that research going because it feels like we've had two decades of research around this there's so many it keeps on growing but yet we're still not getting it right i know i know it's interesting because it is so diverse because all the the cognitive biases that we use in behavioral finance actually are from psychology and their origins or social psychology or some of the, those kind of disciplines. And so on Wikipedia, which I know as a faculty member, I'm not supposed to suggest, but it's actually way better than it used to be. But on Wikipedia, there is this amazing cognitive bias codex. It, it is the most incredible thing of like, thousands of cognitive biases. Those are those mental shortcuts that sometimes work out for us and sometimes don't. There are so many we can't even stop. And we don't know how all of those apply to finances, but I promise they do. <laughs> and so I think it's funny when I think about behavioral finance, I love the, was it Thaler who used the word nudge? I think behavioral finance helps us nudge our clients, trick our clients into doing the right thing without having to think. And I think that is a beautiful supplement. Let's get those defaults in place where, for instance, setting up multiple accounts where their paycheck is divided into like a bunch of accounts. So they're not using one big number, but rather multiple numbers. Those little mental accounting tricks are amazing. But at the end of the day, we can't tap into our cognitive biases as well as we can in the heat of the moment. It's only afterwards that we can say, oh, that's what happened because they are so unconscious and part of our brain that is just primal and reactionary rather than preventative or forward thinking. Megan, what are the things we can do to try and slow that brain down so that when you're in that moment, you actually do catch that? Yes. I think if you have motivated clients, they, they can do things like you know, having a cool down period before shopping online where they put everything in a cart and then wait 24 hours and then go back and say, which of these do I really want? Those kind of things are a great behavioral 
nudge that motivated clients can do. Um, again, setting up the defaults so like everything is paid before they see the numbers, you know, including their investment accounts, including their emergency savings account. I think those are great. I mean, the single greatest behavioral finance nudge that came out of the U.S. anyway is that you used to have to check a box to donate into your 401k to, you know, not donate, but to put money into your 401k. And the greatest intervention of all time was now you have to uncheck that box because it changed retirement forever, just making it automatically a default rather than a decision. So the more we can take away decisions from clients that they don't want to make, they don't have to make around our finances without taking away their autonomy, the better. As humans, we're not really good at decision-making. There's no. all this theory, but it all tells us that we're probably still pretty sucky at making yes. good decisions. And then we have to make decisions in really tough times when right. our spouses pass away or when there's this massive emergency. Like, How long is a is it acceptable to take a break from making decisions? Yes, you're so right that when, first of all, there's a cognitive bias called decision fatigue that we do get worse and worse at making decisions if they're too many coupled together. And second of all, yes, when you have grief or other complicated emotions that are fueled by like multiple things at the same time, it is so hard to make the sound decisions. That's when time is your friend, putting off everything you can put off, taking care of just the emergencies and kind of like triaging your finances is the right decision. And that's what, yeah, I think this you know, concept of decision-making partners, financial planners, helping mm-hmm. people make better quality decisions is really coming up more and more. Yeah. I mean, there is a great study that Tanya Luter just published a couple of weeks ago that people who have financial planners are happier, that their relationships are better, that they're less stressed. Like, I think it is part of that faith that someone else is, is double checking my work and making sure I'm doing the right thing. It feels good to know that someone else has my back, you know? I was so excited to see that. And Angie Herbis was one of the early guests of this <laughs> podcast. And oh. there's so much that we can do uh, just to help our clients be happier, right? And just yeah. having a safe space. I think our conversations are becoming more therapeutic. It's not trying to be therapy, but, you know, there's a little bit of a byproduct. Yeah. It's almost like being a good friend. Like We don't tend to listen in our world. And so I think sometimes the best sessions are just really actually listening to our clients and it feels therapeutic just because we don't get that anywhere else where you are still within your scope of competence by being a good listener, you know, (laughs) but it feels so different than the rest of our interactions. When are you outside of your scope of competence? You know, I heard this great thing from my friend, Christy Archuleta, and she got it from someone else. And I can't remember the original citation, but, but it was this thing about doing uh, a, a person, what was it? Client check, a problem check, check, and a self check. And I think this is the greatest, I don't know, um, what they call it, canary in the coal mine way of gauging if you're outside your scope of competence. So the client check is, of course, our clients are going to get emotional every once in a while. Dubofsky and Sussman had an article where they, they interviewed financial planners, not counselors, not coaches, not therapists, financial planners, and asked them, how often have your clients got an emotional session? And 75% of them said, yes, in the last six months, my clients have cried or gotten angry or frustrated in my session. So 
clients are going to get upset occasionally. But if your client is physically, physiologically aroused, either crying or angry or frustrated every session, it's time to get some support. The next one is a problem check. Of course, when you're dealing with, uh, like, for instance, estate planning, grief, and all these psychological concepts are going to arise naturally. But eventually, you should be circling back to those financial issues. So if you are finding that you're meeting with this client and never talking about finances, it's time to make referral. And then the last one, the self-check, I think it's the most essential that you do a check on yourself. If you are exhausted after the session with your client, if you feel like you're, you're thinking and ruminating about the client all the time, if you're working harder than your clients are working in that session, it's time to really think about making that referral and getting support um, for your clients and for yourself. Thank you. That is so valuable. You know, I hope that we get to a point where financial planners should be seeing therapists in order to help them improve. And kind of, I'm at that point where I'm looking to hire someone and just kind of unpack some of these things that can be helpful in our conversations. Part of my reading brought up internal family systems. And I have no clue what this is and how this fits in. Can you maybe help me? This is my very selfish question, but I'd love to hear. This is so funny because my friend uh, Rick Kaler is really diving into it. He sees the tie in to finances so clearly. But in essence, internal family systems is one approach to therapy where you talk about our ourselves as having parts. There's parts of us that are strong. There's parts of us who are scared. There's parts of us who feel like they need a protector. And so if you're able to recognize the multifaceted components of yourself, you can use them in a better synergy. So it's a beautiful approach to therapy. Uh, and going back to your idea of like seeing your own therapist, I think planners would benefit so much from seeing a therapist and their own planner. And I'm going to ramble, so just cut me off. But when you get to see your, a therapist, you can see all the nonverbals they're doing, all the different counseling, communication skills that they were trained in. You also are able to recognize that every therapist is slightly different. So you know, oh, this, you know, this client of mine would fit so well with this very positive, very future-oriented therapist. This client over here would be really good to go back into a family origin examination. So she would be better at this therapist. You get all these insights on how therapists work. And so you get these skills that you can translate into your clients and also skills to make better referrals. I also think that's what's great about financial planners enlisting their own planner. So we just did a study with undergrads at University of Georgia where we had them go and see their own planner and it was amazing them talking about it. Like, what was it like to sit there waiting for the Zoom to turn on? How much? One of them said they felt financially naked. And I was like, that's such a great word. But like to experience what it's like to be a client lets you better empathize with the client and lets you better recognize when your client needs some support or for you to go slower or faster or ways to make them feel more comfortable. So I think both can be beautifully uh, powerful. I want to ask you, Megan, like, if someone is showing up financially naked in front of us for our first meeting, what are the ways that we can make them feel a little bit better and, and less exposed? Yes. Oh, that's so good. These, my friend Megan Lertz has a great uh, speaking thing that I just saw the other day, which she talked about. We always, um, as people who understand the value of the softer skills of financial planning, the financial therapy, those kind of financial counseling, coaching skills, we sometimes may ask questions that facilitate oversharing with our clients by accident. 
And the problem is when you overshare, you do kind of pull back. It kind of does make you not want to seek out again. And so we have to do a kind of dance where our clients know we're there for them without making them go too fast, without making them overshare before they're ready. And so I think uh, the idea of going slow is really, really key. Spending time, we call it joining, but spending time just helping them see you as a person, see you as like uh, listening ears, framing your work together, framing what your relationship is going to look like. That at the beginning of your work with clients can be really powerful to kind of set the stage. Wow. It sounds like such a delicate balance between nudging and prompting and going a little bit deeper, but then also slowing down and pulling back and creating that safe space so that they would want to come back. Because if they're not coming back, then it's probably not serving either one of us. Right, right. And that's why I think it was Dave Yeske, I think, who said like that financial planning is an art rather than science, that there is techniques. And, you know, each of us are a little bit different. So some of us can go faster. Some of us can go slower. And you won't know that until you get to practice more and more and, and really facilitate a space where your clients can share feedback openly and honestly with you. That's so lovely. And Megan, I want to thank you as the teacher of this art of financial planning and yeah. making financial planners and their clients live better, more purposeful lives. Uh, it's wonderful the work that you're doing and I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. You are doing amazing work too. It's just so fun to talk to you. <laughs> if people want to reach out to you, want to learn a little bit more about the dozens of papers that you've co-published and published, like what's the best place for them to do yeah. that? You're welcome to email me. My email is just my name, Megan McCoy at KSU period edu. That stands for Kansas State University period edu. And then also my LinkedIn uh, profile. You're all welcome to um, connect with me. And I love conversations with other planners. So please reach out and good luck with everything. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll add that to the show notes and all the best. Thank you. Thank you.